0: Francis Schaeffer once said, truth always carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation, loving confrontation, nonetheless. If our reflex action is always accommodation, Regardless of the centrality of the truth involved, there is something wrong. If you've ever wondered why Jesus sometimes seems almost relationally abrasive in the Gospels, it's because his reflex action is not accommodation. Jesus didn't operate with a a natural impulse to try to find a way to reconcile everyone else's thoughts and feelings with his truth claims. Jesus simply spoke the truth because he is the truth. One historian said of Jesus, truth was like the air to him. But as Schaeffer points out, truth always carries with it confrontation. In today's passage, we see that even with the people who knew Jesus better than anyone else, what mattered most to Jesus was not what they thought or how they felt about him personally as a man, but the centrality of the truth he was proclaiming about the identity of the Messiah. Our passage this morning highlights the second half of the scene from the synagogue in Nazareth. The turn of events that we see here is nothing less than shocking. Then again, indifferent reactions to Jesus weren't very common, Our passage is Luke 4, verses 23 through 30, but I want to read the entire account again, beginning in verse 14, so we can get a feel for how dramatically things change here in an instant. Brothers and sisters, hear then the word of the great I Am. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Passing through their midst, he went away. So Father, what a miracle that you as the great I am, we can address as Father. We would have no hope to come into your presence to ask you anything apart from the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf but because of what Jesus has done because he has passed through the heavens because he promises to ever, ever live to make intercession for us because the Holy spirit as well intercedes with us with groanings that words cannot express. We can pray now with confidence and ask you to reveal your glory through your word by the power of the spirit as we pray in the name of Jesus. And so we do that now. Lead us, we pray, in his name. Amen. As we discussed last week, the overarching theme of this passage, the, the big picture idea, is that Jesus is revealing himself not only to be Israel's Messiah, but also the Savior of the whole world. As the angels announced to the shepherds, this message is good news of great joy for all the people. After many centuries and multiple prophecies and much longing, God's anointed one, David's greater son, Israel's Messiah, deliverer, and redeemer, he who is Savior of the world, is finally revealed. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Amazing. This Jesus just delighted his hearers in his hometown of Nazareth in their synagogue by preaching the gospel from Isaiah 61. He has just proclaimed freedom for the captives, sight for the blind, liberty for the oppressed, and a new era of blessing, the year of the Lord's glorious favor. And they were absolutely enthralled with his words. They marveled at the gracious words coming out of the mouth of their hometown hero. So, why couldn't Jesus just leave it there? What would possess him to to go on to provoke the crowd to display some serious hometown hatred? Why does it seem like the one who said, blessed are the peacemakers? Why does it seem like he wants to pick a fight with his own people? Why? Because it was inevitable since truth always carries with it confrontation. For Jesus provoking the people by pressing in was an expression of gracious compassion. It was evidence of his ever pursuing love because he knew that they were praising him simply as the hometown hero, but not as the Messiah of God. But despite the fact that this was an expression of his ever-pursuing love, that is not at all how the people received it. This is exactly where we need to press in in this passage. Why do the people reject the message of Jesus so strongly? So let's just broaden that question just slightly And and think about it together this morning. Why do people reject or resist the good news of the gospel? Let's look at four reasons drawn directly from our text. First, sometimes the reason people reject or resist the good news of the gospel is because they don't find the messenger credible. Verses 23 and 24. Sometimes it's because they don't think they need the message. Verses 25 and 26. Sometimes it's because they don't like the terms of surrender. Verse 27. And sometimes in the final verses, it's simply because they don't want to hear the truth. Verses 28 through 30. We know this is true. Do you remember the scene where Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees? And he says to them, the reason you don't believe is because I tell you the truth. Now that's far more an indictment of the hearts of the Pharisees than it is about the truth that Jesus is proclaiming. Let's just begin with our first reason there are times there are times when the person sharing the good news of the gospel is one of the reasons that people are resistant to its message to its message now sometimes that's the fault of the messenger and sometimes it's not imagine you're a high school teacher and you go to the doctor's office for a checkup they call you back you walk into the room and you sit down and one of your former students walks in with a stethoscope around their neck, and you say, whoa, 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 <laughs> time out. You know, besides the relational awkwardness, right? You're saying, I'm sorry, no offense, but I'm going to have to ask for another doctor to see me. Uh, you know, the doctor might protest. He's like, look, I don't shoot spitballs anymore. <laughs> Believe it or not, I graduated from medical school. To which the teacher might reply, yeah, but the bigger issue is you got a D in my anatomy class (laughs) in high school, right? (laughs) Sometimes familiarity isn't your friend. The members of the synagogue said, is not this Joseph's son? In one sense, given the way they marveled at his words, this, this might have been a compliment, but Jesus recognizes that this comment at another level reveals their skepticism about him. So Jesus says, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now, don't go looking in the book of Proverbs for this particular statement because you won't find it there. This isn't a biblical proverb. This is Jesus more bringing in a common saying, like the proverbial wisdom of the day. The question is, what does it mean exactly? This idea is a little bit like sharing the concern you might have if you're sitting in the waiting room to see the orthopedic knee surgeon. And the surgeon walks in, with a very pronounced limp. And you say, there might be a reasonable explanation, but this guy is going to have to prove to me that he knows exactly what he's doing because that limp is not helping his credibility with me at all. The carpenter that grew up in our little town is the Messiah? You're going to have to prove this to us, woodworker, because we're not buying it all the way. Jesus makes this clear by his own explanation of this proverb. We don't have to wonder what it means. He tells us, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here." in your hometown as well. In other words, we've heard the stories about all the great things that you did out here. Now, show us. We're your family and friends. Let's see what you can do, Messiah. (laughs) The skepticism of the people means that they're going to demand that Jesus do miracles to prove who he is. But Jesus isn't a circus entertainer. He has no intention at all of jumping through their hoops to prove his true identity. His word is fully sufficient to reveal the truth. Notice his emphasis on truth. Truly, I say to you, verse 24, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, there's nothing that the people could have pointed to in Jesus' past or from his life that would have hurt his credibility as a messenger. He he never got a D in Torah class when he was a child. And his behavior around town, we know, without question, was above reproach. Because there was no sin in him. But they knew him. That's the issue. It puts another spin on the idea that you need to know Jesus personally. (laughs) They knew Jesus personally. Since he was a child. So they had questions. For the people... Their familiarity with Jesus prejudiced them against his extraordinary claims through no fault of his own. Now, since we have been charged with sharing the good news about Jesus, and since we're not Jesus we need to think through this issue of credibility. Ultimately, we acknowledge that God is sovereign over salvation, but this this is an important issue. Think about the people in your life, family, friends, neighbors. Are there ways in which our own life choices may prejudice others against Jesus? if we were going to share the good news with them. In other words, are there ways that we interact with people? Are there ways that they see us acting in the world that would cause them to say, why in the world would I think Jesus is the greatest being in the universe when that's not very obviously to me the way that you live? Or just think about something as basic as your Time spent at work. Are we honest? Or do we work hard at work where we're being paid? Or how do how do we talk to our spouse and to our children in public? I can't tell you how many times I've in I've been in public and heard a man speaking about his wife or a wife speaking about her husband or about their children and my first thought was, oh Lord, I pray they're not a believer. Does the aroma of Christ emanate from my life or does it smell like something else? Less pleasant. to be clear to be 100% clear i am not talking about how that we have to live perfectly in order to have a pristine testimony or witness about jesus i am saying that credibility matters what about when you make a mistake or do something wrong Or sin against others, whether it's your children or your spouse or people that you know. How do you respond to that? Is humble repentance a part of your life? Is it evident that when you sin, you realize you are wrong and you humbly ask for forgiveness? That's not an issue of perfection at all. That's an issue of authenticity, telling the truth. You need Jesus, and I need Jesus. Do our neighbors know that we love Jesus? Would they be surprised to find out that you were a Christian? How, How might they come to believe that we do love Jesus above all earthly pleasures? How would somebody come to that conclusion? If messenger credibility is a reason that some people reject the gospel message, then it's worth thinking about. Lord, is there anything that you desire to change in us? So that we ourselves would not be a stumbling block to anyone else seeing the good news about Jesus. Lord, Lord, guard us from a heart that feels like we need to be perfect, but, but help us to be real. To acknowledge that we need repentance. To live in a manner that is reflective of your goodness and your glory. So that when we go to speak to others about Jesus, their response would be, yeah, that's just about right. Right. Lord, help us to that end, we pray in his name. Amen. What about this, though? What if you look at the response of the people in the synagogue and you say, they have a point. That's a fairly reasonable argument. What if you too are familiar with Jesus, yet you're still skeptical of his claims, just like those in the synagogue? If, if that describes you, I am pleading with you, I am pleading with you not to settle for familiarity with Jesus. Jesus. Knowing Bible stories doesn't save your soul. So read his word. Weigh his claims. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal. Reveal the truth to you about Jesus. The reason this is so important is because being familiar with Jesus is not the same thing as saving faith In Jesus. Just because your mom and dad love Jesus counts for nothing for you. You need to put your faith in Christ. There's a sense in which young people in particular, you are in the most dangerous position of all. Because you go to this church and you live in your family. You are familiar with Jesus. Just be exceedingly clear. That is not the same thing as saving faith in Jesus. So as the Spirit works in your heart, put your full trust in him for the salvation of your soul. Familiarity with Jesus is a tremendous blessing. It just won't save you. So respond to the prompting of the Spirit and put your faith in him, even this very hour. Verse 25. Again, note the emphasis on truth. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, this is where I think this passage, this passage gets absolutely Fascinating. Here, Jesus gives the first of two biblical examples. I think that he's sharing these specific examples, not so much to reveal his identity as Messiah, but to reveal the spiritual condition of those who are listening to him. Because it's their spiritual condition that is preventing them from seeing the truth about who he is. The people were operating under the assumption that they were completely good with God. These are the chosen people of God. Their perspective was not that Messiah was coming to convict them, but to vindicate his people. In their minds, the problem was outside of them. They needed to be delivered from their oppressors out there. They weren't ready to consider that the words of Jesus applied directly to them. Now, on the trails of the Grand Canyon, there are multiple signs warning hikers about dehydration. Some of them are fairly graphic, if you could see the sign. (laughs) The warning signs encourage people to drink water regularly, even on a schedule. Set your timer, drink water. Whether you feel thirsty or not. The reason is because in the summer, the climate's very warm, very arid. Since it's so dry, people have a tendency not to drink enough water because they don't think they need to. The Grand Canyon averages 12 deaths a year. Some of those are because of dehydration. Despite the warning signs. Despite the truth posted on a sign for them to read. The reality is that those who hike the Grand Canyon are in a life and death situation whether they realize it or not. The warning signs are not just true Generally speaking, the warning signs apply specifically to the person reading the sign. In 1 Kings 17, God sends Elijah the prophet to Zarephath. To be 100% clear, that's located outside of Israel. It's northwest of Israel. It's along the Mediterranean Sea. If you're familiar with it, it's about halfway between Tyre and Sidon. This is Gentile country. Here, Elijah comes across a widow and asks her for water and a morsel of bread. Since there's a famine in the land due to drought, the widow tells Elijah she's down to the very last little bit of her flour and of her oil. Her words to Elijah reflect the desperation of her condition. She says, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare food for myself and for my son that we may eat it and die. She knows this is it. There's nothing left and the land is dry. They are as good as dead. This will be their last meal together. After this, there is nothing. There is nothing. And there is no hope coming. Except Elijah tells her to prepare the food. But he says to her, before you do, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. For thus says the Lord, your jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty. And she did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. What would you do if you were down to the last crumbs that you could eat together as a family, and somebody wandered in, wandered by, and said, hey, can I have some of that? Would you be more inclined to share with that person if you know your your pantry was full? Or if this was the very last crumb you had left? See, what happens is she knows she's dead. Elijah brings hope. Thus says the Lord. Your oil and your flour will not run dry. What does she have to lose? Nothing. Nothing. She's dead. She knows it. And so is her household. So, as Jesus is pressing in with the people of Nazareth, why does he share this particular story? Why this story? In one sense, this story reveals God's love for the Gentiles, but in context, what is it that Jesus wants the people of God to see here? Like the hikers who ignore the signs on the trail, the people of Nazareth don't realize that they themselves are in a life and death situation. But you know who did realize she was in a life or death situation? The widow of Zarephath. So she receives the truth preached to her from the prophet. She needed it and she knew it, so she trusted in it for her salvation. Much like the citizens of Nazareth, many people, think about this, just like those in the synagogue at Nazareth. There are many people familiar to us who are familiar with Jesus. But they don't realize they are in a life and death situation spiritually. What might the Spirit of God want you to do about that particular truth? For now we can we can we can pray. Let's do it together. Lord, when we see the stark reality that Jesus is communicating here through through this biblical example with the widow and Zarephath, Lord, we realize that all people, even those who are familiar with Jesus or in a life and death situation. So would you open their eyes? Would you open the eyes of unbelievers who are rejecting the truth of the gospel so that they might see his glory and turn to him and be saved? And would you, for believers who are resisting the power of the gospel in their own lives, Lord, would you set us free? Would you fix our eyes on Jesus and help us to live in light of what is true by the power of the Spirit? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian... Sometimes the reason people reject the gospel is because they don't like the terms of surrender. Now, let me say a word to those of you who might be joining us over the live stream or to someone who may hear this message at some point at some point in the future. I feel led by the Spirit to say to you that what I'm about to say next is probably why God led you to tune in to hear this particular message. May God do a miracle in your life as a result of it. In Second Kings 5 we meet Naaman, a Syrian Gentile. Naaman was the commander of the army for the king of Syria. He was a proud and privileged and extremely powerful man. To Naaman, the idea of surrender is absolutely unacceptable. This is how 2 Kings 5.1 describes him. He was a mighty man of valor. But he was a leper. The Syrians had captured a little girl from Israel who who served Naaman's wife. This little girl told Naaman's wife that there was a prophet in Samaria who could heal the army commander. So, let's think clearly about this. The hope of healing, his rescue from death, came to this proud man through a most lowly and unlikely source. Would he humble himself? Would he humble himself and believe the truth even from a slave girl? The answer is sort of. As desperate as Naaman was, he still wanted to surrender to his need for healing on his own terms. He refused to surrender on these terms. Instead of listening to the truth about the prophet, which is what the slave girl said, instead, Naaman had the king of Syria write a letter to the king of Israel and ask him to heal Naaman. And so Naaman showed up with tons of silver and of gold and with the letter from the king of Syria. In other words, yeah, I'll get healed on my terms. I'll have my king. I have a relationship with my king. I'll have him call your king. Your king can heal me. In fact, no favors. I'll pay for it. With a ton of money. I'll buy my salvation. Thank you. When the king of Israel reads the letter, he tears his robes and he says, Am I God? (laughs) Am I God to kill and to make alive? Notice that the king of Israel realizes this is a matter of life and death. But Elisha the prophet hears about this and he says to the king, king, send Naaman to me. Which is originally what the slave girl said. So picture this scene in your mind It's it's simply written, but it's so dramatic to me. Imagining the prophet Elisha living in a a small home. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house, 2 Kings 5, 9. In other words, here I am, prophet. What are you going to do? The problem is, this man of God doesn't give a rip about the commander's power or his chariots or his privileged position with the king. In fact, Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends a servant to deliver this message to Naaman. What do you think God's trying to tell Naaman? The message is go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. How do you think Naaman responded to that? He is absolutely enraged. He will not submit himself to these terms, not even to get the healing he needs, not even to be rescued from death. Naaman thought that this great prophet would come to him, that he would wave his hand over him, and he'd do a spectacular miracle for him. Why do you think I paid all this silver and gold? In 2 Kings 5.12, Naaman says, Are Abana and Pharpar, the rivers in Damascus, are they not better than all the waters of Israel? Can't I go there and be washed and be made clean? Jordan River. It says he turned and went away in a rage. How prideful are we as people? Someone is offering you healing from leprosy? And you say, not on your terms? We'll do it my way. Well, God's not intimidated by that. Naaman wants to be healed without admitting he needs help and without having to depend on another. But brothers and sisters, this is the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is we have to depend upon another. If you're listening to this and you're proud of who you are, lay it down before God so that you might be healed. We must depend upon another, all of us. And the one we must depend upon is Jesus. So then how does naming get healed? He goes away in a rage. This is where I think we as the people of God can come in and provide clarity and simply communicate the truth and God might do a miracle through it. Naaman's servants came to him and they said to him, my father, this is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? And God uses this to reveal the truth to Naaman. That's exactly what he said. Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was made clean. In love, Jesus wanted the people of Nazareth to be healed according to the word of the man of God, namely himself. But in their privileged position as the chosen people of God, they refused to listen even to the word that had the power to rescue them from death. This is just so clear. I actually wrote... These words, I was thinking about this when I was sitting in the lobby on Friday afternoon at Rick McGill Toyota. It was so clear to me, I was crying, practically sobbing. I was in that place where I'm crying in public, trying to not look like I'm crying in public. You know, the, the sales guy's like, boy, that must have been a big bill that you just got for your repair, right? And he said, no, it's Jesus, what was making me cry was God's willingness to continue to pursue us and to rescue us despite our repeated unwillingness to come to him and to trust him on his terms. When you realize that's how you've been saved, it's just overwhelming. Therefore, I would say to you, if you're still watching Friend, lay your burdens on Christ. If you are a confident and privileged, and powerful person, listen to the words of this poor preacher Wash, wash and be clean. Behold the beauty and the power of the ever-pursuing love of Jesus Christ. Behold that in this scene and humble yourself. God will not accept you on your terms because you have no right to claim any privilege or to come to God apart from the merits of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you trust him fully, He will save you on his terms. If you're a believer in Jesus, you may not have rejected the good news of the gospel. Indeed, you have not. Or you wouldn't be a believer in Jesus. But you may be resisting the reality of its power in your life. So, So I'm lovingly, confronting you with the truth, like Jesus. Are you wanting God to work in your life, but in your heart, you're quietly dictating the terms to him that you find acceptable? Now, that may not be how you would frame it, but if you regularly just feel disappointed with God, or if, if you feel like you're constantly in this mode where you're wrestling to process what God is doing in your life, this might be why. If that's true for you, lay down every aspect of your life, all of your joys, all of your disappointments, all of your suffering. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Friends, this is where you find complete freedom and limitless joy. James says it this way, humble yourself before him before him, and he may exalt you. That is on his terms, in his timing, according to what he knows is best for you. Spiritually and eternally. The reality is that we are the widow of Zarephath. Her physical poverty, could you be any more broke than your last meal? After this, nothing. Well, that's an illustration of a far greater reality, namely our spiritual poverty. We are Naaman the leper. Is there any more graphic of an illustration about the reality of our spiritual condition, than leprosy. Further, we are the poor and the blind, the captive and the oppressed. And we need to be rescued by our deliverer. Friends, praise God that Jesus has not just saved us from our sin. He saved us from ourselves. (laughs) Praise God that Jesus is willing to sanctify us, sometimes despite ourselves. The truth is glorious because it could set us free. But it always carries with it confrontation. Whether it's the word of God confronting our own hearts and our own lives. Or us sharing the gospel with others. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town. And brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing away through their midst, he went away. Two thoughts about this. One, this is Jesus. Jesus. Of Nazareth he's probably been in ministry at the most a year at this point which means from age from birth to age probably 29 he was here in fact he was probably in town a few months before this and they're ready to throw him off the cliff and kill him second look at the sovereignty of God in verse 30 and we don't know how or why this is the case If God did something miraculous or they just started bickering with each other and Jesus just walked away, who knows? The point is, no one could kill Jesus until God said, now is the time. He's not going to let Jesus get thrown over a cliff and die in some backwoods town. He wanted his son's death to be a proclamation to the world. He was going to be executed publicly So that he would be raised up so that others could be saved. In this passage, we see the heart of God revealed as Jesus willingly tells the truth as an expression of his ever pursuing love. But the truth always carries with it confrontation, In these verses, we also see the heart of man revealed very strongly as the people demonstrate their hatred for the truth when it doesn't meet their expectations of what is right. Think about how perverse that is. So what accounts for the instantaneously murderous reaction of the people? They believe they are the chosen people of God and they think Jesus is telling them that God is skipping over them to go to the Gentiles. That's why they're so angry. Rather, Jesus is telling them that they too need God's saving grace just like the Gentiles do. The problem is that this didn't meet their expectations of what the Messiah should say or what the Messiah should do. Why did the people want to kill Jesus? They wanted to kill Jesus because he was proclaiming a Messiah to them that they did not want. He was revealing himself to them as a Messiah that did not meet their expectations. And therein lies the problem with the heart of man look, God does not make himself available to us to do whatever we think he should do. Rather, God graciously condescends to save us from our sin and from ourselves so that we might worship and enjoy him forever. Everything that you see and experience is fundamentally not about you. (laughs) It's about the glory of God on display. Look, it'd be good this week to talk about where we're tempted to think that God is obligated to do what we think he should do. And that can show up subtly. It'd also be good to talk about how much more freeing it is to realize that we actually get the privilege of participating in everything that God is doing in the world for our good and for the sake of his glory and honor, even if that thing that he's calling us to do is to suffer. Because what shows his value more than when in suffering his people say, yet God is glorious. Now, final thought as we run home here a striking element of this passage is that the attempt to throw Jesus off the cliff uses almost the identical language in Greek uh, as is found in Luke chapter 8. When Jesus exercised the demons, sent them in the pigs, and they ran off the cliff and drowned. In other words... The people of Nazareth, though they knew Jesus personally, were so enraged by the truth that he told them about their spiritual condition, they wanted to exorcise Jesus from their region as evil, to kill him. One of the reasons people reject the good news is because they don't want to hear the truth, even if that truth can rescue them. And frankly, this is what's behind the heart, of the modern-day phenomenon of cancel culture. I don't like what you're telling me, so you're done. You're gone. That's one thing to be able to click, swipe somebody away. It's another thing to throw them off a cliff and kill them. But the the issue is men want to stamp out the truth when it exposes them, right? This only works in the universe where you're God. Since you're not God, that's illogical. Or to put another way, that's stupid. Who cares what you think ultimately if it opposes God? What God says is true is reality. That is what's true. This is how the Bible says what I just said. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness. Rather than the light, because their works were evil, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. John three nineteen and 20. But saints, take heart In this truth, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not, and praise God, cannot overcome it. John 1, 5. Since this is true, let's tie everything together full circle. Let us boldly and lovingly continue to share the truth, even though we know that the truth always carries with it Confrontation. May God deliver us. May God deliver us from this fear. May God deliver us from the reflex action to seek accommodation when it obscures the only truth that will save sinners from themselves. Brothers and sisters, may we trust in the God who alone is God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit the one and only true and living God. To him be all praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you encourage our hearts with the truth revealed in this passage centered on the reality of the gospel itself, which is we can't come to you on our terms. You alone can rescue and you alone can save. But that's good news because you're the only one who can do it. And so Lord, I pray that our hearts would rejoice because of your willingness to save sinners by offering your son to stand in our place to bear the punishment for our sins so that we might receive his righteousness so that we might have relationship with you forever through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we acknowledge this day that you and you alone are the giver of life. And you are not only the creator of life, you are the recreator of life because you redeem dead hearts. So Lord, cause us as your people through the power of the spirit in Jesus' name to rejoice now in these truths. Amen.